0: we been dipping into uh, the book of Joshua, and uh, for those of you who came with us when we last looked here in the book of Joshua some weeks ago, you will recall that we came to one of the best-known sections of the book. And we spent some time, didn't we, looking at the story of how the walls of Jericho had come tumbling down through the miraculous intervention of god you may recall that the children of israel had marched around the city carrying the ark of the covenant in the center of their procession and the ark you recall was a symbol of god's presence with his people it was the focal point of his relationship with them and this witnessed to the fact that it wasn't the israelites who were waging war against the Canaanites. It was God who was executing judgment on them. And indeed, this truth, which had been demonstrated visually through the central position of the ark in the procession around the city, this was further confirmed when just before the walls came tumbling down, Joshua declared to his men, Shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Now we saw last time that the is- when the Israelites took the city, they were given clear instructions as to what they should do. For in Joshua chapter 6, verse 17, we read, The city and all that is within it shall be devoted to the Lord for destruction. Its occupants were to be slain. And then the city and its contents were to be burnt with fire. Only the metal items were to be preserved. And these were to be dedicated to the service of the Lord. Well, while it wasn't the easiest of passages to deal with, we saw that this wasn't an act of wanton violence. Rather, we saw that it was a command-driven by God's desire to protect his chosen people. One of the purposes of the instruction was to prevent his people being led astray by the false gods of the Canaanites. Back in Numbers 25, we read that no sooner had the Israelites stopped on the east side of the Jordan that they'd been led astray by the women of Moab. And by, by verse 2 of that chapter, we had read that the Moabites had invited the people to the sacrifices of their gods. And the people ate and bowed down to their gods. So we see that in, with bitter experience, in two short verses, neighbours had become intimate relatives. With these, within these two short verses, neighbours had become fellow worshippers of a false god. And so the instruction to devote the city of Jericho and all within it to destruction was a command which reflected God's hatred of sin and the lengths to which he would go to protect his people. But we also saw there was another reason why Jericho was to be destroyed because the term that we have in our Bibles as translated as devoted to destruction appears in the book of Exodus just after the Ten Commandments have been given. And you remember that the first commandment was, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Now that God... The Lord is the sovereign creator of all things. He's the king and master of our universe. He holds all things together. And he sustains the world in which we live. Every breath that we take is a gift from him. And indeed, in Acts seventeen twenty eight, Paul tells us that whether we choose to recognize it or not, in him, in the Lord... We live and move and have our being. Creation then declares and the Bible reveals that God is the great I am. He is the one who has been and always will be. He is the awesome, infinite, eternal and perfect God. He is the epitome of goodness. He is majestic in his holiness. He is awesome in his glorious deeds And he does wonders for us to behold. The truth is that this Lord, this God, is worthy of our undivided praise and worship. Why? Because he is God. But there is only one true and living God. And it's a gross... A grotesque aberration of reality if we ignore that truth. If we choose to defy the one who has every right to expect our worship and obedience. And so it's no surprise then that a few chapters later in Exodus 22.20 we read, whoever sacrifices to any other God other than the Lord alone, he shall be just devoted to destruction. Or being devoted to destruction is what happens when anyone chooses to ignore the reality of who God is. It's what happens when they turn their back on him. When they set themselves up in defiance against the sovereign Lord of the universe. And that is precisely what the Canaanites had been doing for 400 years. But it's important to realize that being devoted to destruction in this way wasn't an act of spite against the Canaanites, but it was a universal consequence, and is a universal consequence, of rebelling against God. For here we're confronted with the Lord of heaven and earth, whose holiness is impeccable. As one minister has put it, this passage doesn't present us with the Lord versus the Canaanites, but it presents us with the Lord's holy hatred of sin. And this was emphasized in verse 18 of chapter 6 that we looked at last time. Because the Israelites were also warned, keep yourselves from the things devoted to destruction, lest when you have devoted them, you take any of the devoted things and make the camp of Israel a thing for destruction and bring trouble upon it. You see, the need to recognize God for who he is, the need to respect and obey him, the need to worship him, is a universal obligation everybody is created by God and everyone has a responsibility to glorify him and heed his instructions and anyone who defies this reality does so at their peril and that included the Israelites as well as the Canaanites There were to be no exceptions, and if the Israelites were to ignore God and take the spoil of Jericho for themselves, they would bring the same judgment on themselves as had befallen that city. Well, as we saw last week, God executed his judgment on the city of Jericho. And so we read at the conclusion of the account of that campaign in chapter 6, verse 27, that the Lord was with Joshua. And his fame spread throughout all the country. That chapter finishes on a great high note. However, this is not set to continue. For chapter seven starts with a little word that changes everything. Chapter seven starts with the word, but. The note of is interrupted by this account of the sin of Achan and its consequences. Now we'll spend some time this morning considering this account of Achan as we find it here. And we look at it under four headings. Uh, the essence of Achan's sin, the effect of Achan's sin, the exposure of Achan's sin, and the end of Achan's sin. The essence of Achan's sin, the effect of Achan's sin, the exposure of Achan's sin, and the end of Achan's sin. And before you get too worried, there are four points this year, this week. Uh, I should mention that we'll spend a little bit more time on the first than on some of the later ones, so don't get too worried if you start looking at your watch. So let's look first at the essence of Achan's sin. Look at verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Kami, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah of the tribe of Judah took some of the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. At this stage, of course, Joshua did not know what had happened. But the opening verse tells us That Achan had contravened this direct command of God. For he took the devoted things. Now that just summarizes Achan's sin. But if you skip on to verse 21 for a moment, we read Achan's own account of what happened. He says, When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and I took them. And see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. This gives us a bit more detail about what happened. We learn not just that Achan had disobeyed God, but we see here that the root of his sin was covetousness. Friends, this is a scene which we can see repeated time and time again in the Scriptures. Go back to the Garden of Eden. We read that Eve saw the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, and it was pleasant to the eyes. She desired it. And so she took it. We read of King David walking on his rooftop. He saw Bathsheba. He desired her. He coveted her. And so he took her. And here Achan follows the same pattern, doesn't he? He saw, he tells us, he saw, he coveted, and he took. Covetousness is a very subtle sin. In each of these cases, what started off as an innocent encounter, they saw. It led on to serious offences against God. And it brought about life-changing consequences for each of these people. In their shame, Adam and Eve tried to hide themselves from God as their intimate communion with the Lord was broken. And then they were ejected from the paradise that they'd been given to enjoy. King David, he coveted. And it led on, didn't it, to adultery and then murder Achan coveted and it led on to theft and then to lying and then the destruction of both him and his family. When we stop to consider the backdrop to each of these events, however, isn't it remarkable? Adam and Eve had been placed in the Garden of Eden. They enjoyed fellowship with God himself What more could they have wanted? And yet they weren't satisfied. They weren't content with the abundance of all that God had given them. They wanted something else. They wanted the forbidden fruit. King David was at the height of his reign. The kingdom's borders had expanded. His armies were successful and he had accumulated both fame and wealth. What more could he have wanted? But David was not satisfied with what God had given him. He wanted something else. He wanted another man's wife. Achan had seen the miraculous wonders. He participated in this miraculous crossing of the Jordan that we read about a few months ago. He'd been there and seen the fall of the walls at Jericho. He'd entered the land of his inheritance. He'd been given a place in a land flowing with milk and honey. What more could he have wanted? But he wasn't satisfied. He wanted something else. He wanted the treasure that he'd been told belonged to God. And this lies at the root of covetousness, doesn't it? At dissatisfaction with God and the provision that God has made for us. When the walls of Jericho fell, Achan advanced with the Israelite army into the city. We're given no details of the battle that uh, took place there. But whatever fighting may have taken place in the streets of Jericho, there was another battle raging, this one in Achan's heart. He wasn't content with the wonderful blessings that he'd received from God's hand. And so when he saw the garment and the gold and silver, he wanted them and he took them. He stole the items that had been set apart from God, having been told what the consequence would be. He chose the forbidden trinkets that he saw glinting in the ruined city rather than the treasure which God had prepared for him. Friends, what a dreadful choice Achan made that day. Puritan Thomas Watson says, "A man is given to covetousness when he so sets his heart upon worldly things that for the love of them, he will part with the heavenly for a wedge of gold he will part with the pearl of great price Luke 12:15. In, in Luke 12, verse 15, Jesus says, take heed and beware covetousness. And for good reason, because isn't this a temptation we all face? Every day we're faced with what the world has to offer us. Every day we're presented with things that appear beautiful, things that glisten, things that are attractive, things that are pleasant to the eye. And they can take many forms, can't they? A chance of greater financial security. An opportunity to advance our career. Affirmation of our character or performance by work colleagues. Or the flattering attention of another. Some of these may not be intrinsically wrong. Others may be clearly sinful, but the question is whether having seen them, we go on to covet them. What happens when we see them? Do we set our hearts on them? Will we cling to them rather than the heavenly treasure which God has given us? We sang a few verses from Psalm 119 a few minutes ago. And we would do well to echo the words of verse 37. Oh, turn my eyes from worthless things. Give life according to your word. If you're a Christian here this morning, then you've embraced the gospel, haven't you? You understand that you have a pearl of great price. You have in your possession something which is of Inestimable worth. You've been shown the love of God. A love which did not even spare his own son. You've seen that our heavenly father gave his son so that we should not perish but have everlasting life. And having given us his own son, doesn't the Bible assure us that God will also give us all things? Friends, is it worth parting with any of those things in exchange for anything that the world may offer you? Thomas Watson goes on to say this. The root of covetousness is distrust in God's providence. Faith believes that God will provide that he who feeds the birds will also feed his children, that he who clothes the lilies will also clothe his lambs. And this faith overcomes the world. Friends, are you satisfied with what God has given you? Take time. Take time to meditate on the gospel. Take time to meditate on his goodness to us. And reflect on the words of Psalm 16, which we sang earlier. Recognize that the land allotted to me is in a pleasant sight. And if we do this, it will help us to guard against Achan's sin. But if that's the essence of Achan's sin, covetousness, we need to move on and look at the effect of Achan's sin. Look back at verse 1. But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things and the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. I wonder if you're surprised when you read those words. One man had sinned against God. But God's anger was directed towards the children of Israel as a whole. And this reflects the corporate identity of Israel. God had entered into a covenant with a people, his special chosen nation. They were a community. And so Achan's sin didn't just affect himself, his sin affected the whole community. And robbed them of their purity as God's people. As a consequence of this sin, then God's countenance no longer shone over them as a community. Rather, it was the anger of the Lord which bore down upon Israel. Joshua, you see, didn't know about Achan's sin at that time, but he but he did see its effects. And what a series of dire consequences we have recounted for us in these verses here. Men are sent out to reconnoitre the next objective, the city of Ai. But they come back not just with an assessment of the city's defences, but complacent advice about the amount of effort that will be required. We don't all need to go up. There's no prayer. Joshua doesn't seek direction from God. And then we have uh, the rat of the Israelite army, resulting in the death of about thirty six men. And then finally we read in verse five The hearts of the people melted and became like water. Does that phrase sound familiar? Those of you who've been here previously may recall that back in chapter 5, this had been the response of the Canaanites when the Israelites had crossed the river Jordan on dry land. You see, the tables have been turned. To know God's presence and leading was a cause of assurance and joy for his people. But to experience God's absence and even God's wrath was a reason for them to fear and a cause for their despair. Aikenson, then, was not just his own affair. For the narrative is clear that the whole of Israel was affected as a result. There were the families of those 36 soldiers who were left grieving the loss of husbands and fathers and children. The people were left confused and fearful. Even Joshua himself is left doubting God's promises, as he declares in verse 7, Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. Where is his trust in the promises that God had made. Achan may have sinned, but his sin had far-reaching consequences for the rest of Israel. Now, what was true of God's people at that time is also true for us today. If we are Christians... We're part of a community, part of the body of Christ, the church. In 1 Corinthians 12, Paul uses the illustration of the body to describe the church, each part having its role to play in the welfare of the church and the effectiveness of its ministry. And indeed, in verse 26 of that chapter, chapter 12 of 1 Corinthians, he makes the point... If one member suffers, all members suffer with it. If one member is honoured, all members rejoice with it. How then should we apply the lesson of Aiken's sin to our own situation in LCPC today? Surely the lesson for us is that our individual sin Can hinder the process of God's work in the church. It doesn't have to be a big sin. We don't have to be guilty of adultery like David or a significant deception like Achan. But what about the sin that we do commit? Are we taken up with the world? What happens when we leave this building, when we engage in fellowship and conversation with everybody else? Are we so prone to worldliness that our conversation fails to engage our brothers and sisters about their spiritual needs? Are we prone to be self-focused, possibly careless towards others? Is it possible that the lonely in the church suffer because we're not looking out for them? Are we prone to a lack of prayer? Is it possible that the ministry of the church is not as effective as it could be because we're not regularly on our knees bringing our pastors and the ministry before the Lord Will the outcome of the congregational meeting this coming Wednesday any way reflect our own diligence in prayer over the next few days? The root of Achan's sin was covetousness, but the end result was that he was a thief. He took for himself what belonged to God. That personal sin affected the whole community in which he lived. Is there a danger that we take what belongs to God and keep it for our own ends rather than for the benefit of the wider church? Now, in one sense, that could apply to all manner of things. For all that we have belongs to God, our skills, our time, our money. Families, our friends. Time is short, however, so let me ask a direct and pointed question. What about Sundays? It's good that you're here this morning in the congregation, but what will you be doing later today? Is there a danger that we take the Lord's Day, the day that belongs to God, and use it for our own ends? Will you be joining in worship with God's people when we gather again later today? Or will you keep the rest of the day for yourself? Will the preacher and uh, your brothers and sisters in Christ be encouraged by your presence here? will they be discouraged if only a few attend? If you're here, will you seize an opportunity to share the gospel with a visitor? Or will that opportunity be missed? Friends, it's possible that a personal sin, forsaking the gathering of the saints, being absent from church on Sunday, could have a detrimental effect on the wider church. In the same way, Aiken's sin was not just his own affair, but it affected others around him. Well, if that is considering the extent of Aiken's sin, we need to move on. So let's look at the exposure of Aiken's sin uh, that begins to be recounted from verse 10. The narrative sets out how Achan's sin was exposed. First Achan's tribe is selected, then his clan, then his household, and then eventually Achan himself. We can't be certain about the process of selection, but verse verse 14 makes it clear that it was the Lord who was making the selection at every stage until the outcome was clear. And so, in verses 16 through to 18, step by step, the selection process narrows down the field until Achan alone is left in the spotlight. Achan had hidden the treasures in his tent Seems quite possible that his family would have known about his theft and been complicit in it. But no one else knew. But with Achan selected, by God, the hiding had to stop. The contraband was received was retrieved from his tent and brought to Joshua. But Joshua was not the judge on this occasion. For we're told in verse 23 that the evidence was laid out before the Lord. There are two points I think it's worth noting from this section. Firstly, we see that although Achan had hidden these things in his tent, the Lord knew precisely what had happened. God directed the selection process and the outcome was certain before it had even started. And this reminds us that no matter what sins we may hide away in our lives, God knows precisely what's there. Sins of thought, sins conducted behind closed doors, sin which we think no one else knows about, This passage confirms that the Lord knows it all. For all of us, one day, the hiding will have to stop. Friends, uncomfortable though it might be to think about, one day, those sins will be laid out before the Lord. The second point we need to think about We need to see that Achan did not intervene to confess his sin at any point in this process. Even as, even as the net closed in, he remained silent about what he'd done. It was only when he had nowhere to hide that he acknowledged what he'd done. The passage records his eventual confession. But there's no indication here of remorse or repentance. And this is a salutary reminder that we will all eventually have to give an account before God. And although there will be nowhere to hide, there will be many who will have hardened their hearts on that day. Although faced with the irrefutable evidence of their defiance and rebellion against God, laid out, there will be no repentance. Friends, if you are not a Christian here this morning, then please listen to the warning that we have here. Take care that you do not harden your heart against God in the way that Achan did. We need to go on. Go to the end of the passage, to verses 25 and 26. For there we read, the end of Achan's sin. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And they raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the valley of Achor. If you wanted to summarize the message of Joshua chapter 7, then I suggest that the message is that God is serious about sin. God does not take sin lightly. It's not something to be made fun of. We were told right back in the first verse of this chapter that as a result of Achan's sin, the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. And here in these verses, we see further evidence that God is serious about sin. For we see God's wrath poured out upon Achan and his family. And in some senses, this horrific scene, this is a horrific scene. But however uncomfortable you may find it, its graphic detail reminds us that sin is serious and God's wrath is the just punishment for sin. Achan's one sin resulted in death and distress for many others but it destroyed him. And there are two things I think it's helped for us to think about as we come to the end of this chapter. Firstly, there's a poignant comparison to be made between the end of this chapter, chapter 7, and the end of the previous chapter, chapter 6. Previously, we've read about Rahab. She was also in Jericho. And she was faced with a choice. Just that Achan had been in Jericho and was faced with a choice. Achan had a wonderful inheritance that God had prepared for him as one of the children of Israel. But he wasn't satisfied with God's provision And he set his heart on the treasure of a doomed city. In contrast, Rahab forsook the treasure of the doomed city. And she set her heart on a wonderful inheritance that was to be found in God. Tempted as he was in the streets of Jericho, Achan made a dreadful choice—one that would lead to his destruction. Friends, shouldn't this encourage us to follow the example of Rahab, to flee temptation, and to resolve to make an enduring inheritance in Christ? Secondly. In this horrific scene that we have described here, we have reason for hope. Achan was taken outside of the camp, and there the full fury of God's wrath was poured out on him. The valley of Achor means valley of trouble, for it marks the place where Achan's sin troubled Israel. And God's punishment was meted out on Achan. But in verse 26, we are told that after this, the Lord's turned from his burning anger. With sin punished, the way forward is then open for Israel to enjoy the blessing of God. And that is what happens as we read on in chapter eight. There is hope. But this isn't the end of the story. Centuries later, the prophet Hosea, in chapter 2, promised God's mercy on his people. And he prophesied that the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble, would become a door of hope. How could this be? Well, roll forward several hundred more years and we find another man taken outside of the camp. Another man on whom the full fury of God's wrath was poured out for the punishment of sin. Only this man was not guilty of any sin, was he? For this man was the Lord Jesus Christ, who was taken to the cross at Calvary. If we're all honest, we have a touch of Achan in us, don't we? We all covet. When faced with a choice, at times we've all chosen the trinkets of this world, compared to the wonderful inheritance that the Lord sets before us. But if we're Christians this morning, we do not have to face our own valley of acor, valley of trouble for those sins. Because the Lord Jesus Christ has been there in the valley of trouble, in our place. With our sin punished through Christ, the Lord has turned back from his burning anger. And the way forward is opened us to enjoy the blessing of God so friends as we reflect on the horror of Achan's punishment in the valley of Achor let's give thanks to God for such a great salvation let's pray together Our Heavenly Father, we have glimpsed in this account so many things which are hard. We've seen your holiness. We've seen your hatred of sin. We've seen your justice we've seen how rebellion against the almighty maker and sustainer of the universe is an awful choice for any man or woman to make and we see that the consequence of such a course of action is trouble and destruction And despair. But we thank you, O Lord, that you have given us such a great salvation. That your dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, has been to that place of wrath in our stead. We pray, Lord, that you'd help us to grasp all the more the height and depth and breadth of your love to us and that we might love you because you first loved us. We bless you, Lord, for the gospel, for a message of hope, for a message that tells us that the Valley of Acorn need not be a valley of trouble for us. And so, Father, we pray for everyone here this spring. That our hope might indeed be set upon Christ, and that we might share in the wonderful inheritance that you've prepared for your people. And we reflect, Lord too, how this has all been achieved, all been done through the wonderful intervention gracious intervention of the lord jesus christ we acknowledge lord that we deserve none of it that it is all of grace all of your goodness and so father we bless you for the wonder of the gospel and we praise You, lord for it our heavenly father we pray for ourselves now as a congregation we ask lord that uh Uh, we might grow in our understanding uh, of your mercy and your kindness to us. Help us, Lord, as a congregation to grow in our devotion to you. We pray, Lord, that in every way we would seek to use those things entrusted to us, to your glory and your praise. Help us, Lord, to guard against sin. Help us, Lord, to guard against covetousness. Help us, Lord, to have hearts which are set upon you, O Lord, and not upon the passing fancies and allure of the world. Father, help us to be good stewards of all that you entrust to us and help us to use all that you bestow upon us for your glory and praise. In and through the Lord Jesus Christ.